Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but the Lord appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more, more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? And there it ends. So let's pray. God, we ask our Father, as we open your word, that your spirit will be our teacher. As we look at this story, Father, help us to understand what you have for us in these pages of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would do things in our hearts that extend beyond what's contained in my notes. Lord, that you would be at work. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as you know, this week we've had VBS. And uh, kids, VBS has been about what Old Testament prophet? What? Okay, adults. What Old Testament prophet? Okay. And tonight's a musical. I can't wait. I just can't wait. I can't wait. Because I've been listening to the music every morning, back and forth in the car with my grandchildren. And I need to get some of those tunes out of my head. Especially the yeoman's song. Ya ha ha ha. He 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 he. Nothing can stop a good yeoman like me. I need closure. <laughs> and did you know that to whale someone is a passive infinitive verb? Did you know that? Um, Ruby, Lewis, BJ, and I were whaled. What that means is that we were plastered by 90 VBS children with things that make us look like we had been vomited out of a whale. Like pasta covered with chocolate syrup and pickle relish. I have had three showers and I still smell the stuff. <laughs> so, uh, well, we had all kinds of fun together. It was just, it was great fun. And the children learned the story of Jonah. The Bible has been described as a book in which a child may wade or an elephant may swim. They're just different levels of depth to which you can go, and those levels never stop. And this is especially true of the book of Jonah, although maybe the adage should be changed, a child may wade or a whale may swim. Now, you know the old word association game where you... you give a word, and then you respond with the first word that pops into your mind, like dog, cat, that sort of thing. Okay, nine times out of ten, when people say the word Jonah, what are people going to associate with? Exactly, the whale. Like they were partners, you know, Batman and Robin, Jonah and the whale. Uh, we'll call him Wally, Wally the whale. But the thing is, the whale uh, is actually a, there's a misconception here. It's almost comical because this creature, the sea creature, uh, is mentioned in only three verses of the book. And there, it's not a supporting character. It's furniture. Um, Jonah, the story of Jonah is not about a fish. Although, although I used to have a cartoon in my office, and it was a picture of a whale deep in the ocean and of Jonah sinking, and Jonah was very angry, sinking down and down and down into the water. And the whale had this thought bubble. It was looking up and praying, Why me, Lord? <laughs> it was great. But the thing is, this is, this is a very, actually serious story about a man who hated his enemies more than he loved God. Who felt that while he had received... God's salvation by grace. He knew, he knew, he knew better than God that the Ninevites should not receive grace. Jonah felt that he knew better than God what God should do. And the shocking thing is, to me, I identify with Jonah. I, I, I identify with his stubborn heart 
And there are times in my life when I just think I know better than God what should happen in my life. What should happen in the lives of my children. What should happen in the lives of the people whom I love. When I pray for you, some of the things that some of you have gone through, Lord, take this away. Remove this from their lives. And, and, and Lord just doesn't understand how it ought to be. Because sometimes he doesn't take those things away. And in my own life, maybe, maybe I do come to a place of submission. But it's almost grudging submission, like Jonah's submission. What I called last week, Eeyore submission. I'll obey but I won't like it. I guess I'll submit. And the thing is, for God, that was not enough. Jonah submitted, yes. But God wouldn't let it go. I'm going to shift over to another book. And, and actually, there's a connection here. I'm going to shift over to the book of Job for a moment. If you read the book of Job carefully, at the end of the book... Job submitted to God. Same idea. He submits to God's plan, even though it's a hard plan, right? Same idea. He submits to God's plan. But he submitted twice. He submitted twice when you read it very carefully. The first time was the Eeyore submission. When Job basically said, okay, I'm powerful. I'm sorry, you're powerful and I'm not. You're sovereign and I'm not. I submit. But for God, that was not enough. And, and if that's where you are, if that's where I am, that place of, of submission, but grudging submission, God doesn't want you or me to stay there. Maybe it, it feels like a place of security, but it's not a place from which we can grow. So God confronted Job again. And interestingly, he confronted Job using the analogy of two sea creatures. Hmm. Who knew? And after he goes through this process with Job, after he endure, Job listens to the Lord's uh, challenge, Job's second act of submission was the one in which Lord, Job, Job said, Lord, you are everything. And everything I desire is found in you. Okay. So that was Job's second submission. His first one was grudging. Maybe, maybe his first one was an admission. Okay, you're in charge. I'm not. All right. I get it. But the second one was really the submission. Where he laid himself out. Lord, I, I don't understand why. But I want to be with you in this. Now, last Sunday, we left Jonah at the first place where Jonah was admitting that God is sovereign and submitting kind of part one. Okay, I'll go. I guess I'll submit. I'll go to Nineveh. And he did obey God. And he did go to Nineveh in chapter three. But in chapter four, that's not good enough for God. Just as he did with Job, God 
challenges Jonah. And I'm previewing where we're headed. But Jonah is not yet at a place from which he can grow spiritually. So God closes the book abruptly at the place where Jonah has to choose. Jonah's question. Why does God bother with the Ninevites? Our question. Why does God bother with Jonah? My question. Why does God bother with me? And and I think the reason why is Jonah's complaint. If you read back in Jonah 4, 2, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, the Old Testament word for grace, and one who relents concerning calamity. Wow. Now, I said last week that the focus of this book is utterly unique. It's different from all the other Old Testament minor prophets. The focus really is on Jonah himself. And it's not a prophecy per se like Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, and Micah. This is the story of Jonah. And I mentioned last week of the 48 verses, 38 of them are about Jonah and his character. When you read this book carefully, everything and everyone in this book obeys God. Everything and everyone obeys God. The storm, the lots that are cast, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, the king, the plant, the worm, the east wind. Everything and everyone in this book obeys God except who? Jonah. Yeah. So, uh, before we enter chapter 3, I want to make a few observations that I did not have a chance to make that we didn't cover last week. Uh, I put some notes in your bulletin. Uh, about the prophet and about his book. I'll just make a few comments. First of all, his name, Jonah, means dove. Does that fit with him? <laughs> when it came to Nineveh, he was a hawk. So maybe that'll help you remember it. Dove. He was. Second uh, Kings 14 tells us that he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. He was, from, uh, he was the son of Amittai. He was from uh, a town called Gath-Hefer four miles northeast of what was later known as Nazareth. And if you if you consider his 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 the times in which he lived, he lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, as I mentioned. And the book is dated approximately 760 BC. God used Jonah, and 2 Kings 14 tells us this, to prophesy about the expansion of Israel and the restoration of their borders. What prophet wouldn't like that job? Hey, God is going to bless our nation, and soon the borders are going to expand. Things are going to be great. Israel will finally prosper and expand. Uh, and, and that was under this businessman king, Jeroboam II, who was a very unethical man. He was a good businessman. Now, at the same time, the Assyrians were becoming notorious. So, Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So here's Jonah's dilemma. Here's his dilemma. God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to communicate a message of God's judgment. Instead of saying, Oh, yes, Lord, they, they really do need this message there. 
Thank you for calling me and using me to bring this message to them. Instead of, instead of that, he does a 180 and goes in the opposite direction. And the reason why has to do with something I mentioned last week, but I'm going to explain a little bit more this week. It has to do with the historical background of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the kingdom of Assyria. It became one of the mightiest cities in the ancient world. It was about 50 miles in circumference. Uh, circumference. One scholar said that it was so large that the walls were about 100 feet high and the walls were so wide that three chariots could ride abreast on them. This city was magnificent. It was systematically destroyed in 612 B.C. And it was so thoroughly destroyed that skeptics thought that the Bible made all this stuff up. Because for skeptics, the Bible is usually guilty until proven innocent. However, the city of Nineveh was discovered in the 1800s by an archaeologist, Sir Austin Layard, and National Geographic magazine now calls it the greatest of the ancient Near Eastern cities. The excavations have been impressive. And in your notes, I reproduced an archaeologist's rendering based on the excavations of what the palace might have looked like. Just look at that thing. Saddam Hussein would have loved his palaces to look like that. So it was the greatest of the ancient Near Eastern cities. And everyone now recognizes that. What yanked Jonah's chain was not the greatness of Nineveh or of the Assyrian Empire, but their cruelty, which was legendary throughout the ancient Near East. Graphic accounts of their cruelty especially towards captives, still exist. They boast about it in their literature. They drew pictures of it on the walls that have been excavated. And I mentioned to you last week that that, uh, when captives, uh, when people were about to be captured, they often killed themselves rather than allow themselves to be captured by the Assyrians because everybody knew what the Assyrians did to captives. It was not a good way to die. So... Uh, Jonah's expectation and hope would be when, that God, a just and good and, 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 and righteous God, would pronounce judgment on Nineveh, that that is exactly what takes place. He, he is wanting God to destroy these people, just as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, all of that is historical background. I want to fast forward 2,770 years to today. Actually, to 2015, 2,770 years. Nineveh is on the outskirts of what is now Mosul, Iraq. And you have heard of Mosul in the news over the last decade and a half. Start, But if you remember, in 2015, two years ago, the ISIS terrorists began systematically destroying the Assyrian artifacts. Do you remember the videos that were shown on the news a couple of years ago of them going through the museums and through the buildings and taking sledgehammers to statues and, and, and the artifacts? Uh, that was the Assyrian artifacts. That's what they were getting rid of and uh, destroying it. One archaeologist from Columbia University said, quote, I'm not sure that there's much left now to destroy in Mosul. Mosul's library 
which housed thousands of ancient manuscripts, was rigged with explosives uh, two years ago and blown up, everything destroyed. Okay, well, let's get back to the book of, of, of Jonah. In, in Jonah chapters 1 and 2, God called him. And as we know, he took a ship to go in the opposite direction from Nineveh because he was thinking once they know judgment is coming in 40 days, that will give them time to repent no matter how remote that possibility might seem. And I don't want them to have that chance. So he goes in the opposite direction. But God was not done with his prodigal prophet. He sent the kind of storm that terrifies even seasoned sailors. Everybody on board was calling to the God of their choice. Everybody, that is, except for Jonah. So the sailors cast lots to see if one of them was to blame. And God made the lot to fall on Jonah. The sailors tried everything that they could do to protect Jonah. But in the end, they agreed with Jonah's own demand that they throw him into the sea. Now, I want you to think about this. Jonah wasn't afraid to die, and that's just what he assumed would happen. He was not afraid to die. He was afraid that God might forgive the Ninevites. Anything but that. So Jonah made a choice. He'd rather die than do God's will. But chapter 1, verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And as we saw last week, from the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. It was the most unusual organic prayer closet in history, I think. Jonah prayed, and we studied the content of that prayer last Sunday in chapter 2. And we pointed to the close of the prayer in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah came to the point where he recognizes God can save whomever he wishes, even the Ninevites. And Jonah was finally willing to go and to do what God said. Barely, barely, it was submission part one, or really admission of the greatness of God, then submission to God's will. But okay, I'll go. And God was not willing, as we're going to see, to leave Jonah at that place. So, Jonah was vomited up from the belly of the what? Oh, of the what? Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Last week, we didn't talk about the whale. Uh, for skeptics who get bothered about things like this, the presence of the whale cancels out the historicity of the book of Jonah. Couldn't be, couldn't be historical. I, I told you a while back about a, a friend of mine who was a, a student at, at Princeton, and he was witnessing to another student who said that he couldn't believe the Bible. And my friend said, why not? And he said, uh, you know, actually, people don't know specifics, but this guy finally landed on something. Book of Jonah. Couldn't have happened. Uh, whales don't swallow people who live. So, so let's talk about that. Can a whale swallow a man and have him be alive three days later? And if the answer is no, does that discredit the book? And, and if the answer to that is no, does that discredit the book? And does it discredit... What Jesus said, because Jonah was the only prophet that Jesus likened himself to. Of all the prophets, only Jonah. When he said that he was going to be three literal days in the throes of death before the resurrection. So, Jesus apparently believed it. Okay, 
Let me give you some perspectives on this. And then we're going to, there are a lot of asides today. Here's, here's, in history, whales have swallowed men who have lived. Good to know. Professor A.J. Wilson in the Princeton Theological Review, just across the quad from where that student was, described a sailor on a whaling ship near the Falkland Islands who was swallowed by a sperm whale. Later, you know, he was lost to them. Later, they were continuing to, their, their whaling activity. They, a whale was found and harpooned. And when it was opened up, uh, the stunned crew found their shipmate alive, unconscious, in the belly. Now, uh, it wasn't three days. It was part of one day. And uh, here's an interesting detail. He, he recovered fully. But his pigmentation was bleached from the whale's gastric juices, and he never lost the whiteness on his face, his neck, and hands. So, interesting. That, well, that has happened. Uh, and, and by the way, I called it the elephant in the room, but a, a, blue, a blue whale is the size of 40 elephants. But we don't even have to go there, because the text doesn't say he was swallowed by a whale. The Hebrew word for whale is not used. The book says God appointed a great sea creature, a great fish or whatever. It's just a sea creature. Maybe God used an existing animal like a whale or my view, God, the creator created, formed a creature, appointed the creature for that purpose, the purpose of preserving Jonah. Logically, this is actually a miracle of preservation of life. If you believe that God is the creator, and in fact, if you believe God can resurrect someone from the dead, then preservation of someone still living isn't much of a problem. Here's the bottom line. Jesus said it happened. Not as a parable, not as a myth. And frankly, for those who don't believe God can intervene in history, then no amount of evidence will be enough. Uh, By the way, the student at Princeton accepted Jesus as his savior. And as they were leaving his room, my friend asked, the the thought occurred to him, and he asked, what about Jonah? And you know what the young man said? He said, I don't know, but I guess God could do it. His understanding of what was reasonable got enlarged. Because... God could do it. Well, that's a good place to be. Well, in chapter 3, we're going to go, jump back into our text. In chapter 3, Jonah went to Nineveh, and his message was in one sentence, a one sentence preaching in chapter 4, and here it is, in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In the Hebrew, it's just five words. That's it. Just five words. It's a very simple message. No context. Just that. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And yet the people turn to the true God. How do they know to turn to the true God? In fact, if you look at at Nineveh's response, look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And, And then we continue to read on about how the king repented and issued a proclamation of repentance in verses 6 through 8. Why? Because of verse, what, look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his anger 
so that we will not perish. Question, how can it be that a king and a kingdom could repent so entirely and so readily? My guess is that God orchestrated the events in the just as God orchestrated the events in the life of Jonah, he orchestrated the events that led to a season of repentance. I'm going to call it that for right now. I'll explain why in a moment. A season of repentance for the nation of Assyria. And those events were, for example, two plagues in one in 765 BC and the other a few years later in 759 BC. And then in between those two, a terrifying solar eclipse in 763 B.C. And then right after that, Jonah shows up and he's got this message. And it, I don't know. I mean, is it possible that Jonah was bleached by the gastric juices so that he looked like death walking? Uh, which might explain his sensitivity to the sun in chapter four. I don't know. If so, he would have been a walking audiovisual from God. And by the way, <clears throat> it's possible that word of Jonah's mode of transportation got around. And if so, that would have been very significant to the Assyrians because they worshipped the fish goddess Nanshi and the fish god Dagon. So they worshipped those gods, and yet God is in charge of anything related. So whatever it is, the text of Jonah doesn't mention any of those things. So whatever contributing factors there might have been, they are secondary. No matter how the Lord was preparing the Ninevites for Jonah's message, they responded. And yet, you know, we look at this and we wonder, from the standpoint of history, what's the point? The repentance of Nineveh seems meaningless because historically it was temporary. So the question about why God would do this sort of thing just hangs out there. Why? Well, we'll come back to that. But our, our uncertainty is also part of the story. Because when we submit to God, do we trust that even when we don't understand why, knowing who is enough. When we don't understand why, is it enough that God is in charge? Is that enough for us? Because if, we, if we're there, that's a place from which we can grow. Well, now we come to chapter 4. The Nineveh evangelistic crusade was a huge success. But not how Jonah defined success. I mentioned last week he's the only preacher who was ever angry over the success of his preaching. And if this book were made up fiction, at this point, Jonah would say, oh, Lord, this is so much better. What was I thinking? I am so sorry. I repent. That's how we would construct the book. But in this evangelistic crusade, it's the evangelist who needs to repent. Jonah is just furious. He preached judgment and that's what he wants to see. Literally see. He wants to see it. He is right and God is wrong. And in Jonah's mind, God is the one who needs to repent. God needs to repent from his patient grace with the Ninevites, which is the very attribute that keeps God 
from squashing Jonah like a bug. Okay. Jonah plops down outside the city gates, waiting for fire and brimstone to engulf Nineveh. Jonah's dreaming of Sodom 2.0. That's where his mind is. He, I, how aware was he of what was going on inside Nineveh? I don't know. But when 40 days had come and gone and judgment did not fall, Jonah pouted. There's, there's just no other word for it. He pouted. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew, I knew what you were like. You were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. I just knew it. I knew that's what you were like. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? You might want to think this through. Do you have good reason to be angry? Okay. So he's waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. And God used nature as an object lesson to teach Jonah. Do you remember in chapter 1, God appointed a great fish? Well, here, the same Hebrew word is used three more times. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed a shirako. That is the, the, the violent, scorching east wind. Okay, take a look at, at verse 5 of, of, this, of this, uh, this chapter, of chapter 4. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. He made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm that is a destroyer. So there's a protector, and now there's a destroyer. Uh, uh, God uh, created a worm, probably attacked the roots, the thing withers like that. When dawn came the next morning, it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a third thing, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. I want you to think this through for just a moment. Jonah had done his preaching 37 days earlier. And he could have gone home. God didn't tell him to stay there. But he's waiting because he wants Nineveh to be destroyed. He's waiting the full 40 days because he wants their destruction. So he doesn't have to be there and instead of, you know, pouting that death is better to life, to me, than life. It, it's an astonishing, it's an astonishing thing. And, and then... Then here's what God says to him in verse 9. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? Remember in verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? Now the same words are given to Jonah and three more words are added. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant? 
for which you do not work, which you do not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? See, plants don't suffer pain. People do. Plants are not in God's image. People are. Plants have temporary existence. People have eternal existence. So the, the closing question is, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than, now get, get this closely, don't lose this thought, more than 120,000 people, people, persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. That's children. He's talking about children here, small children. 120,000 small children here. Maybe 600,000 plus adults. So, I mean, I mean people all together. So, <laughs> Jonah? What are you thinking? Well, what he's challenging Jonah with is you have self-serving compassion. Self-serving compassion for a thing. And you don't have godly compassion for people who are in my image. Now, we like happy endings. We like to have everything resolved in 44 minutes plus commercials. But at the end of this book, we're just left hanging, hanging with the stalemate of indecision. And God's rebuke is just hanging in midair. And we're, we're uncomfortable with the ending. And there's a reason for that because God wants us to be uncomfortable with the ending. He doesn't want us to be comfortable with where we are in our Jonah moments. So what do you do with your Jonah moments? Those times when, when you're willing to obey but grudgingly. And you wish God would change his plan to comply, to comply with your plan, which is better, you think, than his plan. Are you willing to trust him, to trust him with a whole heart to move into a place from which you can grow spiritually? By the way, there's a historical epilogue here. Um, Nineveh repented, but not happily ever after. 150 years later, Nineveh had gone back to being what Nineveh was, a godless place, an awful place. And God sent yet another prophet to Nineveh, Nahum. And this time they don't listen. And in 612 B.C., a coalition of armies from different nations gathered and destroyed Nineveh. And that's where you heard about how it was in ruins. And with ISIS, it's now even in more ruins. So what's the point? Why did you do this, God? What's the point? Okay, this is the part that Jonah wrestled with. Why, God? Why? Well, the reasons have to do with God's character and God's plan. First of all, God's character. This is who God is. He is gracious, compassionate, Slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who who relents concerning calamity. That's what God is like. That's who he is. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is patient with us, and that's good news. He wants no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants everyone who does not know Jesus as their Savior to realize that they cannot save themselves. And to trust in Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We, by faith, trust in Jesus for our salvation, not in our good works. It's a gift that we received with empty hands. Because that's what God's like. That's what the gospel is. 
But here's the second reason. Not just God's character, but consider God's plan. He's got a bigger plan in view. How real was the repentance of Nineveh? Well, we don't know individually. But we do know that something happened historically. I've mentioned their brutality. I mentioned how notorious they were. But there was one period of time. One period of time when their treatment of captives was less bloody, less gruesome, less vicious, more humane than at other times. And that was during the period after Jonah. And then later, like an inchworm motion of slow moving traffic, they began to escalate back to the same level of viciousness by the time of Nahum, the prophet, 125 to 150 years later. What am I getting at? Okay, here's what I'm getting at. God, why would you bother to soften them for a 150 year window of a kinder, gentler Assyria? Well, here's why. It was during that window of time that Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And you know all the stuff that they did to captives? They didn't do it to the northern kingdom. You know the ten lost tribes? They're not lost. They were scattered among the different parts of the Assyrian empire rather than do to them what they had done to other captives before Jonah went to Nineveh. Do you see what God is doing? So that later on, most of those Jews that were scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire returned back to the land, piecemeal, family by family. And so that the tribes were in place when Jesus entered Jerusalem. So why did God bother? Well, God knew what he was doing. Did God send prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel? Yeah. Hosea and Amos, but God knew, because he's God, that they wouldn't listen. So he had already put into place Operation Kinder and Gentler Assyria. God knows what he's doing. He has his reasons. I want to close by reading Jonah 4, verse 12. And Jonah said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Instruct me, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, by, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Oops. Sorry. That's not Jonah 4.12. Jonah ends at 4.11. That's from Job 42. Job's second repentance. Job thought he knew better than God, and then when he was confronted, he submitted to God, phase one, admitting that God is sovereign. But then God confronted him again, and, 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 and then God said, Lord, you're everything to me. You're everything to me. Before, I thought I knew you well, but now, oh, I see you. I'm yours. Well, I'm glad we're not like Jonah, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, not so fast. Not so fast. Have you ever become angry with God? Maybe he let something happen in your life that you think he was wrong about. Maybe we think we deserve something that we don't receive. And somebody else gets it that we think is unworthy of it. 
And we become angry because God has no right to give them the blessings that they don't deserve, especially when I worked so hard and didn't get them. Besides, they're jerks. Kind of like the prodigal's, uh, sorry, yeah, the prodigal son's older brother uh, who couldn't stand it that the father gave grace to his little brother. There may be somebody in your life whose success just eats at you. Maybe we think that God has some obligation to make our lives happy. Happy depends on circumstances. Joyful, yes, because that relates to spiritual blessings. But happy? No, that's day to day. And we may submit to him, but grudgingly, more of that admission that he is in control than submission that he is good and he knows better than I do how my life should unfold. And I, I know I'm, we've been in here a while and you've been patiently listening, but I want the kids, especially who are in VBS, I want you guys who are in VBS to listen to this really carefully. Do you ever submit to your parents grudgingly? Do you ever obey with a bad attitude? <laughs> so that if, if your parents could hear what's going on inside your heart, they'd hear something like, Okay, I'll do what you say, but I don't want to do it, and I don't like doing it, and I'm going to do it with a rebellious heart, and I'm going to be slow to obey. I'm going to do it slowly, and I'm, not, I'm going to do it so poorly that next time you won't ask me to do it. Oh, my. Do you ever think that way? I remember thinking when I was a little boy, if I died, then they'd be sorry. <laughs> oh, it's pathetic. I know. Very immature. But you know what? Do we do that as adults? Parents, do you? Do we ever submit to God grudgingly? Because he does know what's going on inside our hearts. We, we all have our Jonah moments. What do we do with them? Do we want to stay in that phase one and be shallow and wallow in half-hearted obedience? Because God won't let us stay there. There is no such thing as half-hearted growth. You can't grow from that place. Do you want to grow and mature as a believer or not? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to just take a moment of reflection. Is there some attitude or some issue that you need to bring before the Lord? Some. Something that you need to admit to him to confess and to ask forgiveness for and to express your love for him. Just take a moment and do that. And then I'm going to close in prayer. Father, nudge us not only to go where you tell us, but to warm us by your love for people, people that we may consider unlovable. I ask that your grace would be more important to us than our pride. Help us to learn to love with your heart. May our disappointments with the details of our lives draw us closer to you.
not serve as a cause for blaming you. Because, Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.